Hello, family. We are back in John, continuing chapter 2, picking up where we left off. Before we get started, I'd like to have a prayer, if you'd bow with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you, continuing to thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for this day, this day to worship you, Father, and glorify you. We pray that we always do so in spirit and truth, Father. Pray that it's pleasing in your sight. I want to thank you for uh, your word, our ability to uh, learn and uh, learn more about you, Father, and the wisdom that we gain from your word. Thank you for giving it to us and giving us this opportunity to do that. We ask that you be with each one of the people that are going through this. We pray that you be with me as we go through this. Help us to uh, learn what you want us to, Father. Help us to come at this with uh, <clears throat> open, open hearts, open minds, and just absorb all that you have to give to us, all that you have to teach us. Thank you, Father, for your Son, His example, and what we're learning from it. Through Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, we are in chapter two. If you want to turn your Bibles over uh, to John chapter two. And again, just for uh, informational purposes, I am reading from the New King James Version, in case you see some differences in what you're reading. So in John chapter 2, uh, we're going to start off and just read verses 1 through 5. Starts out, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. I'd like to stop there. And, and there's some stuff to look at here real fast. And, of course, we're talking about a Jewish wedding here. And uh, from my understanding, Jewish weddings could last as long as a week. And just like weddings today, there's lots of planning to do, a lot of expectations that come with that. And running out of food or drink uh, for your guests is not something optimal, uh, to say the least, especially uh, in a culture like the Jewish culture where hospitality is heavily emphasized. Um, so uh, with that, with this setting, the wedding uh, party must have been uh, someone close to Mary. Um, and Jesus, and along with, uh, for, for them all to be invited. Uh, and not only that, but Mary also appears to, she, she appears to have some responsibility in the preparation and or execution of that planning of the wedding. Uh, it kind of is thought at this time that uh, Joseph um, is possibly deceased since he was not there, and uh, that since hence the responsibility um, to help her went to Jesus, the oldest son. And <laughs> now today, starting a sentence with woman typically is frowned upon in our society. Uh, the English here doesn't come across as affectionate as it does in the Greek writing um, or the Hebrew being spoken. So let's take that into account when we uh, when we look at this, and, and he starts a sentence with that, or his response uh, with that. Um, think of it 
as dear woman or madame or ma'am, as we would use today. Uh, although it does show their, um, their relationship has changed some since he's not calling her mother. Kind of shows that he's uh, maturing and uh, becoming more adult-like. And his question to her is essentially, what do you want me to do about it? Um, you know, that's not what, that's not uh, a part of what he was there for, uh, is to is to do miraculous works at that time. Of course, um, not just at the wedding, but on earth for. Uh, he, it was His time hadn't come yet. And Mary did not respond to his question. And she also didn't seem deterred uh, from his response. Um, by, so she, because you can see that she left the servants under his guidance with the expectation that he would somehow fix that issue. Right? And even the statement that uh, she she gave, even though it maybe it could have been offhand, and it's very simple um, and substantial. We don't know exactly her inflection or, or her mannerisms, how she said it, but what she said, whatever he says uh, to you, do it. Um, it's kind of you know it it um, substantial uh, that just that statement. Uh, if, you, if you think about it, because that's truth. I mean, whatever Jesus tells us, we should be doing it, right? Um, and we know we know Mary knew Jesus. He, she knew he was from God. She was told that from the beginning. And then he had a purpose. Um, but it also makes me wonder how much uh, how much of that she understood. Obviously, there were so many things that that she was told and that she saw through Jesus, that she cherished. But um, I'm, it just still makes me wonder how much that she understood. And when he was talking to her about that, how much she understood uh, with that interaction she had with Jesus. Was she expecting him to perform a miracle or do something else? Now, we're not giving insight to that, but it's something interesting to think about. Though uh, with Jesus having respect uh, toward her, he granted her request. Uh, in a way that would generate belief from those who we, who we knew, uh, the apostles, um, and even those other servants that were there that were under his charge, uh, which would confirm him as from God and glorify the Father, uh, which was, again, the purpose of miracles in the first place. And we'll talk about that here a little more throughout John. That brings us to verse 6 through 10. It says, Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And I read too far, I think. No, 10, excuse me. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted uh, that the water that was turned into wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. His master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. 
<clears throat> so we see six water pots that uh, total could have held between you know, 100 to 150 gallons of water or for the rest of the world, 378 to 568 liters. Um, of course, that's approximate. We don't know the exact sizes of the pots or the uniformity in size or anything like that, but we give the, we're given the approximate here, the 20 to 30 gallons each. Um, and we're told why they were there. Uh, they were there for the guests to cleanse themselves uh, according to the Jewish customs of purification that they had to do daily because daily life, uh, they would be uh, essentially become uh, unclean just for doing that, just going throughout the day and doing the things they, they, they did. And um, that's why they were made out of stone instead of earthenware like other pots. Now, with the number of guests present for the wedding, typical wedding, again, we don't know the numbers, um, but that typically took a lot of water to, uh, to do that. So that's why there was so much. <clears throat> now, that water was turned to wine. It should be talked about how the word wine in Greek um, does not differentiate between uh, the different types of wine, the freshly squeezed juice or the fermented. Uh, the Hebrew does uh, some, and um, the Greek does have words for drunkenness, but it still doesn't divide that meaning of the wine. So, um, and if you remember, John's written in Greek, and again, it doesn't specify which one. Typically, uh, for Jewish celebrations, including weddings, they use fermented wine. Um, but that could be set up today. Typically, for weddings today, there's alcohol included. But... There are always exceptions. We don't know if that was the case with this one or not. Now, uh, the response from the, the Feast of the Master is interesting um, here because he says, typically, uh, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, and that drunk is actually, in, uh, that Greek there uh, has to do with uh, intoxication, usually in, in the case of that. Um, than the inferior. He's not saying that's happening here, but he says that that's typically what happens. Um, so we want to take that into account when, um, when we're talking about that. And we also see that he speaks of good wine, then inferior. And typically when people um, speak about that, you know, today they talk about aged wine made from quality uh, grapes and quality process of fermentation. Uh, but um, back then their culture was different and their winemaking process was different. And there's, so there's differences in the, in the wine that we don't have today um, for the most part. Uh, so the Jews had uh, similar ways of preparing wine that the Greco-Romans did soon after that time and during some of that time. One was uh, Yayin which from my understanding means to boil up. And that is uh, um, typically that type of, uh, of wine. It could be consumed as is or cut it with water because it's so, so strong since it's been boiled up. Uh, and then two is uh, tyrosh, which is a sweet wine, a new wine. It's new wine, so it's just it's juice, right? Grape juice. And then third was uh, Shimmerim, 
uh, otherwise known as the dregs. And that's like how the oldest, oldest wine is made up of the skins, um, sometimes the leftovers that were from the trampling of the, the grapes. And sometimes they would take some of that and mix it with other wine to give it some, some flavor because that's where all the, a lot of the flavor is in, is in the skins. Again, this is um, not my personal experience with that, just my understanding of it. And But having said that, um, we there's plenty of research that I did that talks about the Greco-Roman process, which is very similar. Uh, the first is the new wine, uh, like that we talked about, which is just the juice, which um, doesn't need to be mixed with water or anything. They just drink that straight. And... Um, the second is to take that new wine, that juice, and to boil it, which uh, stop the fermenting process before it starts. And again, it makes it very thick and condensed, and it has a very strong taste. And they usually was mixed with water because it was so strong. And then the third was to take fermented wine and mix it with water. And typically the ratio, uh, it, it, there was a range of it, but it was typically one part of wine to to up to 20 parts of water. So it was diluted down pretty considerably. And it was typically said back then that they would more putting wine in water than water in wine, which today is, is unthinkable. If you're a consumer of wine, diluting your wine, um, that's, that's not a good way to consume wine today. <laughs> Many suggest that um, the mixing was for the mixing of water and wine was for disinfecting the water to make it safe to drink. Uh, current tests, though, have shown that for that to occur, for that um, disinfecting to occur, you'd have to switch the ratio, uh, and then so switch the ratio, which would be instead of one part wine to two to twenty parts water, and you'd have to switch the ratio completely. And it be more heavily on the other end, like 20 parts water to one part wine. Excuse me, 20 parts wine to one part water. And at that point, um, there, wouldn't, there wouldn't be a point to add the water um, because the water would be, there's, again, there's no point to add that much water. Even then, um, it isn't really suggested to do that if you're trying to, because it wouldn't completely sanitize the water for consumption. It would do a lot more, but it wouldn't completely do it. And so the main purpose here, uh, the practice back then, seems to be to improve the taste of the water. In Homer's Odyssey, uh, it is mentioned how Odysseus and his crew mixed their water with one part wine to 20 parts water. And again, that's that opposite ratio needed for disinfecting. Another reference uh, from about 60 BC mentioned that it was harmful to drink wine or water alone, while wine mixed with water is pleasant and delightful to the taste. So, didn't really specify why it's uh, harmful to drink water or wine alone, but you, I mean, there's pretty good reasons why you can, if you think about it. Uh, and this view, um, oh, so, excuse me, the Romans, also, the Romans even viewed those who consumed only fermented wine straight as uncivilized and savage and labeled a barbarian. Uh, again, this view of that, uh, of the Romans, uh, 
and the practice, it lasted centuries until easily the fall of the Rome, the Western part of the Roman Empire. Other sources from that time, so you can see there's a lot of there's a lot of mention of that. Uh, talk about wines being better when they had their potency removed by a strainer or purged, and those are different two different sources there. So to wrap up all of that information, they had wine during that time, um, and the wine in that time was not the best tasting substance. Um, is very different than what we think of wine today. Now, again, we don't know the details about what exactly was occurring uh, during that miracle. Uh, but what we do know is that it was initially water and then it was into wine. In what form, we're not sure. Um, but whatever it was, it was a good tasting wine. It was a high quality wine. Now, if it was fermented wine, was Jesus encouraging drunkenness? Now, seeing what uh, the Bible says about drunkenness, that, that's not consistent. And obviously, Jesus knew what God's view about drunkenness was. Um, at the same time, we can't, really, we can't really put a box around Jesus' miracles. Um, he could have done a myriad of things uh, to that water that made it taste good, yet have no intoxicating intoxicating properties. We don't know. Um, he could have made an intoxicating wine even and left it up to the wedding guests to make that decision on how much to consume. Again, um, we're not told. So these are just things to take into consideration when looking at these scriptures. That leads us on to verse 11 through 13. And it reads, This beginning of signs... Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, they went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, I should have stopped at 12, but uh, that kind of, they kind of roll into each other, but um, we see that that was one of the first of many miracles or signs done to confirm first to his disciples whom he was. Uh, and also, of course, to the people in that area. The disciples, they got to witness both the signs and the glory of Jesus that was manifested uh, through those signs. Pretty, um, that's pretty awesome. Uh, and again, that only encouraged them in their faith um, and confirmed Jesus' message. So now we see that um, after this, his earthly family and his disciples moved from Cana, which was about the middle of Galilee, when you look at uh, the area of Galilee between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, uh, to uh, Capernaum which was right next to the Sea of Galilee, about 20 miles away. And it was about 690 feet below sea level. So that's when they're saying they're going down to, even though it was pretty much just to the east. <clears throat> now, uh, Jesus used, ended up using Capernaum for um, his main location when going throughout Galilee and teaching. And now we read about the Passover coming. 
and Passover was about the first of April. And so they went down to Jerusalem. And um, it actually says went up to Jerusalem. Even though going south, Jerusalem has way higher elevations. It's like things 2,000 feet higher, 2,000 uh, feet high. So it's a lot, lot more in elevation. So it says they went up to Jerusalem. And uh, like most Jews did for, for uh, Passover, Jews from all over flocked to Jerusalem. I think the, the numbers of Jerusalem swelling was insane. It's like three, three times at least as much as the normal population because of everybody coming into town. And the Passover was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted seven days. And the two were, um, during that first century time, were uh, almost interchangeable and even thought of it as one feast during that time. That brings us to verse 14 through 17. It says, And he found in the temple those who sold auction and sheep, sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the money changers table and overturned, poured out the money changers money, the changers money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So we have that temple there, the center of the Jewish world and culture at that time. A pretty huge complex when you look at it, both in area and in height. Uh, according to the law of Moses, whenever Jewish men presented themselves to the temple, they would offer a half shekel of silver. And that's in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13 where it mentions that. And the priests, they didn't accept any foreign currency in that time. Um, they started the lots for some, like one, I think one, I think it was a Terran, but uh, that was it. They also needed um, specific animals for sacrificing that we read about according to the law. Now with Jews dispersed all over the known world uh, at that time, they came from far away different currencies from the regions they were they were in, which they were using. And it also would have been super difficult to bring the animals needed for the sacrifice for that long journey. So for convenience, um, it was easier to buy animals you needed and exchange the money when you got there to Jerusalem. The problem that comes up with that is man's greed. Uh, the people saw that they could extort other Jews and make a large profit. And that goes against everything the law says about how to treat fellow Jews with money. Um, but um, the people coming wouldn't have a choice because they wanted to worship God and obey him. And they had to do that. They had to abide by those commands to do that. And so those, those men, those money changers and the people that were selling livestock, um, they were coming between God and his people uh, by extorting them. Not only that, but they were not outside the temple at the entrance of the streets uh, leading to the temple or um, at the entrance or in the streets leading to the temple. They brought their animals and their tables into the common area of the ten 
the temple, uh, which is typically called, called the courtyard of the Gentiles. Uh, that's where people came to pray and to meditate. Um, how distracting. Um, trying, to, trying to worship, trying to focus your mind and having all this going on at the same time. And so Jesus here, he shows us that um, there is a time for righteous anger. But at the same time, it's not often Jesus responded with anger. And, uh, and he was zealous for God, which the disciples were reminded of in, with that messianic property, prophecy uh, that we see in Psalms 69, verse 9. And uh, John's gospel is interesting about this about this uh, story because it's different than the other gospels in that he placed it at the beginning of his ministry, of Jesus' ministry, while the others put it at the end, right before he was crucified. That was actually the thing that pushed them over to do it. Having said that, we know we know John's goal is not keeping things in chronological order. In fact, the only thing that's kept chronologically is is uh, that first that first week. Um, but everything else, it seems like it's difficult to, and that's because that's not his that's not his goal. Um, it's not we to think about his goal. We have to go back to that ultimate purpose that we read about in verse or chapter twenty. Um, it's just to get these stories out to people. It's also interesting because the Gospels were out uh, before that time. So everyone knew where the story occurred uh, in the timeline. Even John, he would be able to read those easily and make that consistent. But he didn't, I don't think he was too worried about it. It's also possible that there were two cleansings since there were some minor differences. We don't know. Uh, But it is a possibility. That brings us to chapter, uh, sorry, verse 18, and we'll read verse uh, through 22. The Jews answered him, and answered and said to him, what, shine, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the body, of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So, the Jews, of course, after Jesus threw everybody out on the money changers, demanded uh, for him to prove his authority in doing that. It's ironic they didn't ask him why he was doing it, but by whose authority, uh, which makes you think that they should have been doing that. They knew exactly that why it was it, why it shouldn't have been going on, but yet they did nothing about it. He, gives, uh, he, he tells them, I'm going to give you the ultimate sign. His resurrection with uh, will confirm his authority. Of course, they didn't get it. Um, well, even his apostles didn't understand at that point. And again, it wasn't for their benefit, but for uh, those after 
was it for the, 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 their benefit at that moment, but for after, like a lot of his parables and sayings and, and prophecies. So theirs and ours, it's for our benefit also. That brings us to 23 through 20, uh, 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs, which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. An interesting way to, to end off that chapter there, but we read here the summary of the previous events, along with giving us an idea of why Nicodemus had heard of him, or how he heard of him at least, and uh, why he was interested in talking with Jesus. And that's what chapter 3 is going to be picking up off. We also see that um, during his miraculous works, people were interested. Um, people were hearing of him and believing him. and But there was a difference. And Jesus knew their hearts. Again, that's something that only God can know is people's hearts. He knew their faith was more interest and superficial than seeking God. So he, uh, he didn't stay there for long. And that ends us with chapter 2. Afraid we have to stop there because chapter 3 is going to be pretty intensive uh, with, with uh, baptism. So I hope that was all uh, edifying to everyone here that's listening. Uh, may God continue to bless you. And I pray that... Uh, your studies are fruitful uh, for God and for you.